So a couple actually more announcements uh, before we get into some uh, more teaching material. Um, just to let you know that in December I'm teaching a day-long uh, retreat on uh, it's Sunday, December 22nd. And it's one I've been doing the last few years. We call it the gift of recovery. So it's kind of a holiday-themed day-long retreat here in this space. Um, and I am trying to get my friend Greg Pergamon to come and uh, help out that day because his book called Qigong in Recovery is coming out in December. Uh, Greg and I, uh, we have um, taught a bit together. He's been on several of my retreats, a wonderful guy, uh, and uh, has a very simple, direct approach to Qigong, and he, te- he lives in Las Vegas, actually, and teaches at Las Vegas Recovery Center. And um, So uh, in any case, I'm going to try to get them to carry this book, but I'm hoping he'll come out for that day and kind of lead some Qigong along with the day long and, and have his books and maybe sign some books and all that stuff. So that would be great. Uh, we shall see. Um, a couple other things that are, are coming up here, particularly um, this is a a, um, a day for a day long for um, people of color in recovery. It's called a day of healing and liberation for self-identified people of color in recovery with Shahara Godfrey, uh, who's uh, teaches especially at East Bay Meditation Center. That's uh, Saturday, November thirtieth. And they need volunteers for that. If you volunteer, then uh, it, you don't have to pay the fee for the day long. Um, not sure what the fee is. Or and then they also gave me this one. Maybe they thought we needed this. It's called Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Resilience and Well-Being. It's next Saturday the 16th. So it could be interesting. So if you're interested, there's stuff every weekend out here. It's great. So really, it's all good. So... But, uh, you know, some of them are more, uh, uh, the topics are going to be more interesting to uh, some people than other topics, to speak in the most generic way possible. So, um, this is my unpublished workbook, (laughs) which uh, I'm thinking about self-publishing pretty soon. Um because it's just sitting around doing nothing right now. And, you know, when you, it's like I've written 200 pages. And, you know, if I were getting paid by the page. But anyway, um, so I thought I would read from this tonight because sometimes I write better than I speak. Uh, and this is step 11 and see what you think about what I have in here. So step 11 says, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And I need to capitalize the second H in there. But anyway, um, as I like to say, the only word I reject in this step or in any of the steps is the word him. All the others I find workable. But, oh, interestingly, I should read this to you. I don't know if I can find it. Anyway, these guys in, in here... In one of these pamphlets, they're like, they apologize. They say to women, well, sorry, we just use the male pronoun, but that's just for convenience. You know, please don't take offense. Uh, yeah. So at least they were, you know, they were trying. 
All right. So one of the things I've done in this uh, book is each step I have a little, I started out with something I call, what's this step about? Because I just figured uh, I want to get across my basic understanding. Step 11 is probably the step that people with a Buddhist orientation will be drawn to first when they see the steps. I know I was. In fact, seeing the word meditation in the steps was one of the things that made it comfortable to hang around 12-step meetings when I was still skeptical of the whole process. Step 11 is also one of the main reasons that people read my books and come to my retreats and workshops. The 12-step literature doesn't give much guidance for meditation, and of course Buddhism is one of the best-known meditation traditions, so it's natural that people in recovery would seek it out. But of course, the step doesn't just say meditate. It's more complicated than that, saying that we should meditate and pray for a particular purpose, to get closer to God and gain knowledge of what God wants us to do and for, quote, him to help us to take those actions. When taken literally, I simply can't relate to this whole concept, mainly because it implies that God is some kind of being, a male, by the way, who has some kind of plan for me or preference for my behavior. While I know that many people believe in this sort of God, I don't. And so I've had to interpret this step for myself. And of course, the way I do that is by trying to view the whole process through a Buddhist lens. I've tried to describe this process in both my previous books. So you might take a look at <laughs> there are my book titles. Hey, you got to sell, sell. But here are some of my key ideas. Uh, first of all, conscious contact is essentially what mindfulness is a clear present moment connection to what is real right now. That's pretty redundant, but... God, or higher power, can be seen as the Dharma, especially the law of karma, the Eightfold Path, loving-kindness, and the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Prayer can be seen as a setting of intention and a reminder of how we want to live in the world. The will of God is the same thing as the goal of the Buddhist path, freedom from suffering. Our mindfulness practice makes us more sensitive to how we create suffering for ourselves and others. By responding to what we learn in meditation and in our daily mindfulness, we are acting to move toward this freedom. I don't know if that makes any sense. It made sense to somebody. Good. I may have to rewrite that one. Power comes from each of the elements of the Buddhist path. Mindfulness is powerful. Morality is powerful. Wisdom is powerful. Love, faith, and forgiveness are powerful. Speech, livelihood, intention, concentration, effort, compassion, all of these are powers. Letting go is powerful. All right. So that's kind of my a summation of you know, how I kind of take apart this step. Uh, the next piece is called What is Meditation? Stephen Batchelor, the brilliant and iconoclastic Buddhist teacher, talks in his book, The Faith to Doubt, of our tendency to try to turn meditation into a mechanical process. Quote, Symptomatic of the prevailing obsession with calculation, meditation is considered as a technique, as a systematic application of a preconceived series of ideas. Unquote. People come to meditation thinking they'll learn this technique and get the results they want, whether less stress, a spiritual experience, or freedom from pain. Our culture is very results-oriented, so we figure if we're going to put in our time and maybe pay some money, we should get some tangible result. And, of course, that result should come right away. 
Anyone who has even a passing familiarity with what happens when you meditate knows that such an expectation is not only going to be frustrated, but will in fact undermine the very process of meditation. Meditation isn't a technique that we learn so that we control, can control something, our minds, our bodies, our emotions, or our spiritual state. Meditation is a letting go of control, stepping into a timeless human process that unfolds in its own time, in its own way. We are just passengers on this trip. We're not steering the boat. This fact can be very difficult for people to accept, which is why so many of the questions people have about meditation boil down to, how can I control what's happening? How can I stop my thoughts? How can I stay awake? How can I make my knees stop hurting? Even, how can I get enlightened? These are all the wrong questions. The only real question in mindfulness meditation is, what is happening right now? Step 11 is pointing to this same idea, albeit in a much more theistic way. When it says praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, it's saying that this process isn't about our agenda. It's about something else, about connecting with something beyond our personal and perhaps petty concerns. What all of the great religious and spiritual traditions point to is that none of this work is about me. Buddhism points us towards compassion and service. The 12 steps end with the admonition to carry the message to others who suffer. The whole Abrahamic tradition, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, fosters love and service. The paradox of this teaching is that true personal happiness comes from letting go of our personal agenda and trying to serve others, or in religious language, to serve God. This shift then from approaching meditation with personal goals to letting a process play out in its own way and its own time is key to practice. Meditation is a mysterious experience It reveals aspects of ourselves and of reality that often lay hidden. It can take us to realms of mind beyond comprehension, and it can bring a sense of aliveness unsurpassed in human experience. But we can't discover any of this by rote practice or mechanics. Our heart-mind runs on its own schedule and its own logic. From a Buddhist viewpoint, our role is to observe this process— From a more devotional view, we might say our role is to honor, love, and surrender to this process, which can be called the will of God. Thank you. I know I've I've taken to reading more of my stuff lately just because I like it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I enjoy reading, and it, it, you know, it's, I do, I t- obviously I take time and try to put ideas together, and sometimes it, it has a good movement to it that I can't always accomplish in my, uh, just speaking as I do. It's great reading your books with other people. Uh-huh. You know, I'm part of a, a small group, and we get together on Sunday evenings, and we read aloud. From your books, and we're you've gone through both of them. We're starting over at the beginning. Oh, God! Thank you. That's very nice. And, so, and it's, it's, like, it's different the second time around. Yeah, it seems, yeah. It's always different. Everything's 
any, it's a different moment. Mind that is different. Too. I mean, your mind is different, right. you know, at different the moments. Right. Well, that's very nice. Thank you, Christy. Well, it's a good way, it's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. And then we share about it. Uh-huh. So we don't just read it, then everybody comments on what they've read. No, that's God, I'm glad I'm not there for that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's where the learning comes. Yeah, for know? sure, yeah. We don't comment on your writing. No, no. We comment on your God. content. You're right, right. So, uh, well, I'd like to get back to the subject at hand. Um, And this this idea of of how we slip into meditation being this goal and oriented activity, and it really is difficult to choose to set aside time to do something without expectation. Obviously, we're doing it for a reason. Obviously, we want something. And that may be something specific or it may be something more general and vague. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, part of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Right intention is what motivates us to act. It's what right intention is what motivates us to act in skillful ways. So uh, the difference between being motivated and having a goal is really one of semantics. But what we have to watch in our meditation is the the grasping that might go along with that intention. And this is where we bring, we apply our mindfulness. When, and there are a lot of things that we, it's almost like we need like a little checklist beside us as we're sitting this kind of reference points, even though the instructions are very simple, just pay attention to your breath, and when your mind wanders, come back. That's the basic instruction. We kind of need this checklist like, how's my posture doing? Because your posture, just like your mind, wanders. Right? And as your posture wanders, your mind wanders with it. And as your mind wanders, your posture wanders with it. So... That's not a bad little turn there. So, so that's part of the checklist. And then energy. Am I falling asleep or am I restless? And just tracking that a little bit. And the first one is the very common one, particularly the falling asleep and catching that. Then the quality of my effort. What, what, what kind of effort? And this is where the question of intention comes in because effort is tied in with intention. So am I engaged or and how am I engaged? So it's quite possible to spend quite a bit of time in a meditation posture or setting without being engaged and just kind of spacing out or um, you know, kind of going numb a little bit. And that, that can actually be relatively pleasant, which is one of the risks in it, that you just kind of get in this spacing out state. Um, and, I, and ultimately, I don't think that's completely useless, I think. 
I think that just spending time, quiet time, is helpful. And lots of times you can't help yourself from spacing out. So it might not be a lack of effort, but just the, the lack of the potential in that moment. Um, but this, but this, then kind of checking in with effort and the quality of your effort. Is there, and then again, this idea of is there a, a kind of expectation? And a lot of our expectation that then our expectation gets tied in with our self judgment because we think meditation is supposed to be a certain way, or our experience should be a certain way, and if it isn't. Oftentimes we blame ourselves. I must be doing it wrong. You know, or I'm not supposed to be thinking so much. I should stop thinking. Why can't I do this? And all these kind of things. And, and maybe I, you know, I should read another book and figure out what I'm, you know, get, get the roll back my eyes in my head. You know, that guy said that worked for him. I should try that. You know, we're, and, and yeah, there are techniques to practice meditation. It's not that there aren't techniques, but it's not essentially a technical task. So it's this really, it's this dance, really, watching all these things, watching all that. And and by the way, I'm trying to pay attention to my breath, right? Um, so often what happens to me in my practice is that I discover I'm paying attention to the wrong thing. I don't know if I should say so often, but I noticed it today, so <laughs> that's, that's definitely up for me. That, that is to say, typically, I'm trying to pay attention to my breath, and I'm not having much success at that. My mind keeps wandering, and I'm like, oh, come back, you know. And then, as I realized today, there was all this kind of uh, stuck energy in my body. And a lot of times, that's where I really need to pay attention. I I think I've changed the topics now, but this is related to this process. To not making practice some technique, but rather kind of really asking, rather than saying, oh, I'm supposed to pay attention to my breath, more asking the question, what, what, what needs my attention right now? And what I kind of realized today, I felt like, wow, there was like all this cl- tightness. Like my, and it wasn't physical, it was more, I mean, there was a, there's a physical element, but it's like, you know, there was this whole like emotional holding going on from my belly up to my throat. And, and, um, and, and I and I just had to, and and when I go, when that's happening, very often, and I'm describing this because I think that probably a lot of people have these experiences. So I, I'm describing my own experience to be helpful. I hope. What's happening? What I saw was that I didn't really want to pay attention to this stuff because it was uncomfortable. And it was like there was like bubbling up. Uh, unclear emotions, Uh, and, or maybe not even emotions, you know. I mean, that's what's so interesting. Uh, I've mentioned this during the meditation. At times, 
you can pay attention to, you think you're having an emotion, and when you go to the physical experience of it, it might actually be more of a physical experience that you have conditioned yourself or become conditioned to interpret as an emotion. And when you feel that sensation, you say, oh, I'm... I'm feeling this, naming an emotion rather than a sensation. And then because you've identified this emotion, you have all these associations with that. And then there's a story, and it can actually snowball. In my book, One Breath at a Time, under Feeling Feelings, the third Feeling Feelings, which is in step six, there's three sections called Feeling Feelings. I describe this uh, this happening to me, this kind of, the first time I kind of saw how this could happen, and I was on a meditation retreat. Uh, what, I, I might as well describe it now, <coughs> that um, I kept waking up before the bell on the meditation retreat, which is, like, bad. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, it's not bad according to the retreat, but it's, like, if, you're exper- if you don't want to... You know, basically, it's like you want to get as much sleep as you can because, you know, you're not getting that much sleep as it is. And all you're going to do is, like, go and meditate. So it's like, <laughs> let me just stay in bed for a while. So you wake up, and I would wake up, and there would be this feeling. And it's something that I had, re- I had experienced many times on retreats, but on this particular retreat, I became determined to kind of sort it out. And so... Instead of kind of avoiding it or kind of trying to go back to sleep, I was like, okay, I'm going to just be with this feeling. And pretty qu- quickly, within a day or so, because it was just a feeling that would last like the first half hour of the day after I woke up, and then it would go away. And I, I was able to identify, oh, I see it's fear. And so I kept watching it. Every morning I would wake up and go, okay, yeah, there it is. There's that feeling. And then as I was trying to let go, I kind of, tried to go to the just the f- pure sensation. And finally it was like, there's this little flutter in my belly. And I finally kind of came to the conclusion that what it was was a flutter in my belly <coughs> that felt like something that I always called fear. Because, you know, you feel fear in your be- as a flutter. You know, butterflies, we say, and that's fear, right? So, and so is it fear or is it a flutter in my, you know, well, by calling it a flutter in my belly, it diffused a lot its meaning. It took meaning out of it, and it just became a sensation. And it just really, for that period anyway, for that retreat, it just kind of like, poof, it, it, it lost its power because of that. It was really, really an interesting experience. Um, so I, I've come sort of so let me bring it back to where I started so if I can kind of uh, make some sense out of this little talk that if we if we practice with an idea of this is the technique and this is what I mean to get from it we're not going to go to places like what I just described because we're going to be trying to stay on this track. And it can seem like meditation is about staying on a track. The breath, that's my track. 
And, oh, and I can notice thoughts, but I just notice them and then I come back. That's my track. Most of meditation for me doesn't happen on that track. You know, I get on that track sometimes, like, yeah, plenty of times, you know, yeah, I'm in there. But most of it's happening down here. Most of it's happening in my body and in, in between my belly and my neck and sometimes up here in my eyes when I'm sad. And my throat. You talk to, I mean, you know, you feel all these, and they're just places where feelings show up. And, and what happens is that if I start, try to stay on this track, I'm holding everything down. And I'm actually in this essentially unrecognized, I could say unconscious struggle with myself to control my experience. I'm supposed to just be with my breath, and it's okay if I have a thought as long as I come back. And to both to stay on that track and to and behind that is even more like I don't want to feel this shit anyway, right? So so this is great. I've got this track to stay on, to stay on my breath and my thought. That's good. But the thing is that you can't hold it down, right? And so your mind keeps wandering and spacing out, and you're wondering why that's happening. It's because there's all this energy that's coming through your body you know, that's not getting recognized. All this stuff that's way, either it's flutters or it's emotions. You know, I don't know what it is. But it's stuff. It's there, and it has to be seen. It has to be felt. It has to be given its space. It has to be given its life and acknowledged. And when it's acknowledged and you breathe into it, it's not, you, oftentimes it's not as much of a problem. And there's a sense that comes through that of wholeness, which is really, for me, what we're getting at here. Just, I mean, it's, it's, it's something of what we're getting at here, is that sense of, <coughs> oh, this is what's happening. It's okay. This is who I am right now. It's how I am right now. And it's just stuff. And there's nothing, I'm not fighting anything off, I'm not hiding anything or repressing anything. I was thinking the class ended at 9 o'clock. It goes till 9.30. It's awesome. What the hell am I going to do for the next 30 minutes? <laughs> you guys have to start participating. Go ahead. Uh, what really helped me when I, when I first started practicing is I was on that track, you know, and um, I had a teacher... Talk about what mindfulness wasn't. You know, you hear so much what mindfulness is. Yeah. That like, you know, you so when you you start thinking when you're not doing it, what mindfulness is, you think you're doing it wrong. Yes. So it really helped me when she talked about what like mindfulness wasn't. Uh, It really kind of changed my practice. It gave me that that space to to be with a thought and other you know sensations. That kind of big sky where there's really no end to awareness. I mean, uh, you know, there's sounds that are so far out in the distance that I can, you know, be mindful and, and bring awareness to it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's just really, it's so vast and, and open that it really, and it really changed that, that, that track. It, it, uh, it stopped that track and it made a whole new, um, whole new life of, of mindfulness for yeah. me. It, it, uh, it, it really helped. Yeah, nice. Beautiful. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Are there thoughts? Oh, there's a, someone right behind you. Why don't you ask you to use the mic? Thanks. 
You know, um, meditation, when it's taught, it's interesting. I just, um, I spent like 10 or 11 years on my own meditation before I explored other structures or ideas about what it is and or how how the experience can be related to help other people. And um, the thing you were saying about it's a practice of um, riding in the boat instead of thinking you're driving the trip. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, um, you know, the breathing is a is something we do whether we think about it or not, right? right? So it's like a mechanism in our body that's automatic. And the longer I meditated, the more I could begin to bring these other abilities that we have, whether it be, you know, um, the abilities to intuition, the abilities that tell us our truths. And really meditation and the seeking of truth is about knowing what you are beyond thinking, mm. you know. Yeah. And and yet, you know, in the Buddhist approach, it's about being aware of what you're thinking so that you know when you're not thinking almost, or so that you know what thinking is mm-hmm. and then what's sure. beyond thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it was interesting because I was here on a weekend and this you know, teacher spent the whole day talking about the complexity of Buddhist structure and approach to meditation and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and the most important thing is to relax. And it was like, that's all I needed the whole day <laughs> right, to really. hear. Right. Really, was like the permission yeah. to give myself to relax again. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of like, that's the funny thing. It's like you're talking about something that's not really to be spoken, but yeah. yet you're trying to get there that way. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I've actually, uh, coming into recovery, have found your book to be um, a burning desire to be just such a great way for me to, um, you know, really bridge those two spiritual practices Mm. in my life. So I really want to thank you for that. And um, I'm sort of coming a little bit off topic of not just simply meditation, but I have a specific question. It's been kind of a burning desire in my mind to want to ask you this. um, You were reading um, to us about the, uh, about step 11 and I get this sort of, it's like a uh, circular problem in my brain (laughs) Um, around, you write a lot about the Dharma God, right? And, and how you can find a higher power within the structure of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. give lots of really great examples but I get stuck in this place where, because there is no sort of mystical God on a throne somewhere up there. <laughs> um, I understand that. And it could just be um, sort of leftover understandings of my own from being raised Catholic that I, I then get stuck in this place where, okay, it's all about my actions, being mindful, the no self. And it starts to become all about what I have to do. And then it becomes very willful, mm-hmm. and then I stop being able to understand what a power greater than myself wants for me. Yeah. And it just loops around yeah. and around, and I can't get out of that. I just was wondering if you had any um, thoughts about that. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I think that's a, it's a really good question because it, 
it really does uh, point to the, the the central paradox of of this process and and um, you know a lot of people say that Buddhism is all about uh, that you're on your own. You know, the, the Buddha says, you know, nobody can get you enlightened. There's no God out there that's going to do it for you. And uh, and so, so they kind of take that. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I write about this. I think I write about this in Burning Desire, about how that somehow turns into a very kind of American version of individualism, you know, that we're all, we're all on our own with our own spirit. We all have to get ourselves enlightened. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I thought there was this whole thing called interconnection, you know, dependent origination that the Buddha talks about, that there's, everything is connected. There's nothing separate. So how can we say... Oh well, I'm totally on my own, and there's there's no no power to draw on, and there's it's just me, and I have to use my self will. If if I'm actually connected with everything, so first of all, to the where that. Again, we have to ju- we have to first start by applying mindfulness to the quality of our effort, and that, that's what I think you're seeing. That oh, my effort is becoming will- willful. So, what what's the difference between right effort and selfing effort? Right when it's when it's grasping. What's the difference between right intention and and grasping, these are, you know, intention and effort. I mean, these things are very closely tied together. Well, the difference is that right effort doesn't cause suffering. Right intention doesn't cause suffering. Grasping causes suffering. Yeah. That self-will causes suffering. So, what the way that we can understand? when we are in harmony with the Dharma, is that we're not suffering. And when we are suffering, that's when we can say, oh, there's some clinging going on here. There's some grasping that must be going on. Where, where's that coming from? So this, you know, mindfulness, uh, this kind of mindfulness is very subtle. Uh, and, uh, but this is really what the Buddha taught. I mean, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. I like to point this out, that the first thing the Buddha taught about was notice suffering. So we can can use that because suffering tells, because we know, then he says the second noble truth is that suffering is caused because of your grasping, your craving. So if you are suffering, you can say, where's the craving? Where's the grasping? Where's that happening? And then you can start to look at that and see, oh, look, I'm kind of, I'm trying to control this thing. Wow, how do I do this without controlling? Well, that's, it's very subtle, right? 
I mean, that's, you know, Suzuki Roshi calls it the secret of practice. How to make this effort is the secret of practice. Well, it's not a secret because nobody wants to tell you. It's a secret because you can only know it experientially for yourself. You can own, no one can tell you, oh, this is too, you know, this is too much, this is too little. You have to feel it. You have to bring your own awareness to it. So this is very, very tricky and challenging. So, but getting back to the idea of a higher power, this is just a way of characterizing, in this case, as I'm talking about, effort as not my effort, right? If it's my effort, it's causing suffering. If it's not my effort, then that's what I would call Dharma God, okay? Because it's, it's a power. I am accessing the power of effort, but it's not mine. If I think it's mine, it causes me suffering. So that, I, I know this is a pretty, I don't know how, how to just, you know, characterize this way of thinking, but obviously it's something that I've, you know, <laughs> dug into, and I think it's really important. <laughs> the rest of the Buddhist world doesn't care, you know. But fortunately, I've got some people who do care, the ones who, like, read this, read my books, you know. And, but I think it's a critical point. And, and the idea, I think that the idea of characterizing those powers as aspects of God, the, what makes that useful, it, besides the fact that I actually think it's a good definition of God, but what makes it really useful is that it, really highlights the, their significance. We know that God is important. <laughs> if we believe in God or not believe in God, we know, like, if something is God, it must be important. And so if we just talk about, oh, right effort, oh, yeah, I'll work on right effort. But if we say right effort is a power greater than ourselves, right effort is an aspect of God, you know, well, all of, I think that kind of gets your attention and, and points to the significance of our relationship with that, of how important that is. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to check out Buddhism and, yeah, I'll do some of that right effort stuff. It's like, no, this is God. We can talk about this as God. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, that's, that's pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, is... I don't if you think use this... the microphone because they record it and then people all over the world can hear you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no pressure. I pass. <laughs> yeah, there's about three people who listen to these things. So. Um, okay. All suffering is not caused by grasping. Right. Okay. Because there is trauma. There's sickness, old age, and death. Sure. Right. right, and and other kinds of trauma. Right. No, that's yeah. No, I mean that's an important clarification. So thank you. Yeah, I mean when we're talking about dukkha, you know, when we're talking about the four noble truths and our participation in creating suffering or our role in creating suffering, yeah, we're just talking about the stuff that. We, we are. Do create. We do create <laughs> the suffering that we do create. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you for. for... But 
teachings aren't really like the idea that life and death is our attachment to wanting to be alive. Well, right. I mean, the, this is where I think for... Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I think what you might be pointing to is, you know, the traditional Buddhist teaching that founded in reincarnation, which says that the reason we're born is because we are, you know, clinging to existence. This is somewhat problematic for. A contemporary Western audience, to a great extent, but there's a logic to it, which then, then, uh, because uh, because birth is fundamentally the beginning of all suffering, you know, because you know that everything comes from that, right? I mean, you get born, and then the whole problem starts; the full catastrophe begins. So. If we are then, if if birth happens, you know, if literal reincarnation happens because we are clinging to existence, then, yeah, all suffering does come from clinging. And that's, that is the traditional Theravadan understanding, and which is why enlightenment is the end of rebirth yeah, in that teaching. So the way that a lot of Western teachers interpret this is by saying that, well, it's not literal reincarnation, life, you know, one life after another. It's one moment after another. Your, your ego is being recreated by grasping. So, but, so I would be more willing to, uh, I, um, to accept and certainly you know, fully embrace that idea and accept what you're saying, which is that there are forms of suffering that are sort of outside the the realm of craving and grasping. Of, of, of our own making, outside the realm of, of our own Right. Making. Well, yeah, absolutely. And just in the same way that karma, uh, you know, if, if everybody in this room has their own karma, you know, when we all try to get out of the driveway and our cars crash into each other, it's like our karma is just all... You know, I mean, it's all, our karma is all bumping into each other, right? So it's not like separate. That makes any sense. (laughs) This side of the room hasn't said anything for a while. Maybe that's just because I haven't looked this way. Hi. 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 My name's Kim, and I've read your book, and I loved it. I'm from out of town. I'm from Pennsylvania. Oh, where? And, um, I'm from Philadelphia. Oh, and wait. Thank I'm you. I'm from Bethlehem. Right, right, right. Spent a year in the mental hospital in Philly. So, <laughs> um, so uh, my question is, I have a... S- no, that's funny. Was, they closed it, but not because of me. Go on. Um, I have a... 21-year-old son who's in recovery, opiate addiction, and um, I'm here tonight partly because of that, Um, but um, I was wondering if you knew uh, of any places that a 21-year-old person who is actually interested in 
Buddhism. I know you have been interested for many, many years. You started young, I believe. What, what age did you start? I was 30. 30. I guess I call that young now. <laughs> um, so, uh, so there's not, a, he's in a, a traditional uh, residential rehab uh, on the East Coast, and it's not the way it is here um, with a lot of mindfulness and stuff. Um, is there a place that you might recommend if, if there is one? A treatment for, center? E- either that or, or some situation, perhaps if you're not in active addiction, that you can move into sober living um, situation or, or a retreat center or something, you know, that... I don't know of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's certainly there's been talk, but uh, no, I don't even really know of any treatment centers that seriously use mindfulness as a regular part of their program. I mean, I teach at some, there's one treatment center in San Rafael that I go to once a month, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, can, can I ask you, when you were 30, what, what hooked you then? <laughs> what got you? To move in from traditional recovery or 12 steps. I wasn't sober when I started practicing Buddhist Ah, meditation. Yeah, right. So it was an interest that was separate from from recovery for you. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I blame the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) And they got a lot of people meditating, you know. Uh, So, um, you know, I mean, what. I would just say, you know, I mean, is he interested in Buddhism in some way? Is that what you're yeah. saying? And is he going to be coming back to be living with you? Or? Eventually, yeah. Because there is a, the Shambhala Center in Philadelphia mm-hmm. has a, I th- they have a Heart of Recovery meeting, which is the Shambhala Recovery, Buddhist Recovery Groups. Yeah. You know where that is? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. It's down on, what is that street? Um, Walnut or Market? It's a it's a Buddhist recovery group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I had a yeah. there used to be a clothing store down there that I worked at when I was getting out of the mental hospital. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I can't be no, 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 more it's, help. It's, 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 it's a, great. It's a Thank persistent you. issue that comes up. Is there any Dharma monks uh, in Philly yet? Oh. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Zen centers now have recovery groups too. Um, so it's a little bit of investigation. You at least find that to check in with, and and then you know, from my my view is that especially in early recovery, the your twelve step work is more important than your meditation work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Max, thank Max. you. Welcome. <laughs> so I was just sort of reflecting on it. I'm sure this doesn't happen to anybody who comes here after work and the whole week and it's Friday and you're ready to pass out 
and you come and you close your eyes and your your body says, thank you, Max, can I go to sleep now? And nobody else in this room does that because I'm unique. And so, very unique, right? Kevin knows me. Um, But anyway, what I I struggle with in that realm is, um, I know a few techniques, but that there's a real unconsciousness that happens even if I can keep myself awake. Just, it's like, you know, twice as difficult to not be unconscious. Yeah. I mean, I am unconscious when I'm meditating, when I'm awake and aware and focusing my concentration. There's some un- plenty of unconsciousness just naturally occurring because that's how we are. Right. But I wonder if you could speak to that in terms of, you know, I think just maybe other people can relate to that on some level. Um, just that general unconsciousness and some how to you know work with that more. If there's ways, you know, certainly there's better times than others to meditate. Yeah, I, I don't really have a solution to that. I think there's a line that gets crossed sometimes into f- fatigue and sleepiness that's just pretty irreversible in in normal circumstances. And let, you know, if you're on a retreat or something, you might sit through it, or, uh, but um, in ordinary circumstances, if I start meditating in the evening and I start to fall asleep, it's usually just a downward spiral. I don't really have a way out. At that point, I just pretty much watch Sports Center. You know? <laughs> you know? no, I mean, it just, uh, yeah. or go to bed, but usually you know, it's hard to go to bed that early. Um, I guess I'm struggling a little too with the the after effect is there's a little judgment there for myself like oh I'm not doing this right kind of you know I mean not that if it's really fatigued though yeah I mean it wasn't really that tonight but just this unconsciousness sometimes it's definitely more challenging when I'm tired well you know I don't I don't usually meditate after dinner, uh, except when I'm teaching, and uh, or on a retreat. Uh, but the other night I did, uh, and it was very nice for a little while. And then I went into this that zone of just like the mind just was blanking, and it was just a you know half half asleep dream state, and I r- recognize it very clearly or very foggily from retreats where I've had that happen so many times. And um, I mean, I remember I actually asked Jack Cornfield about this one time when I was on a retreat when I was really trying to push the edges and like, you know, meditate as late into the night as I could and just keep going, you know. And and I said something about, you know, meditating when in that kind of state where my mind has just completely gone blank, but it's not the blank of meditation, but the blank of sleepiness, of dullness, and just like, not, and he said, it's time to go to bed then. You know, he, yeah, he just was like, that's, it's not useful. Because it, it can seem like actually a cool place in a way, you know, like, oh, wow, it's like, it's really empty, you know. 
but it's not it's not you know shunyata you know it's just sleep so I, I don't have any more wisdom than that you know but forgive yourself and go to bed get up and try again tomorrow morning I think I think it's good to meditate before dinner, just in terms of times. I think that's one of my... I don't do it anymore because of my family situation, but uh, when, I, when I lived alone, I would often meditate before dinner, uh, you know, after work. And somehow that was a time when, like, a lot of the work stuff would, would fall away. And because I, my stomach was empty enough that I, you know, I had energy... And it could be a very clear time. You know, in Carlos Castaneda, you know, who's since, of course, been discredited, but we don't care. Um, I mean, he's still, there's still some valuable stuff in those books. And they're fun. Um, but Don Juan talks about uh, the dawn and, and dusk as the power times. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, you know that's, those are the times when people, a lot of people like to meditate early in the morning but it's also really nice to meditate right in that that time the dusk time there's kind of an energy there and so I'll leave you with that mystical advice so um, let's just close the evening with a bit of a dedication of merit Recovery world, we say we can't keep it unless we give it away. In the Buddhist world, we dedicate the merit of our efforts to other beings, to all beings. All of this points to the understanding that there isn't really an I here. To be enlightened or to have a spiritual awakening. And that when we focus our practice and our program on giving it away, that there's great freedom and relief that comes. In a very real sense, as we change ourselves, we change the world. When we heal ourselves, we heal the world. When we wake up, we begin to give something back to the world that we cannot give otherwise. 
Well, may our practice together tonight be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be happy, joyous, and free. Thank you for your attention this evening, and thank you for your dana. And I will see you next month, the second Friday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.